open it back up to Hebrews chapter 12 and continue our study of that book. Um, quickly, as you're turning, um, some of you have asked about Gigi. Gigi will resurrect, Lord willing, in January, and I'll give you more details as we get closer. Um, secondly, ladies, this thing that is happening next Sunday night called Stories of Rescue. Gang, um, I've never claimed to be a, a, a world-class counselor, um, but the thing that, that um, often comes into my office has to do with some kind of um, sexual sin, either perpetrated or imposed on someone because of the presence of porn and on and on and on. Don't miss that, ladies, next week. There are some brave women that are going to uh, put together a panel to speak about um, the scars that we all bear, perhaps, um, concerning this culture's infliction of um, sexual sin and all. So with this, with this uh, case in Hollywood that is much in the news, I, I think it's really a, a very relevant topic, and I hope you'll be a part next Sunday night. Now, finally, um, gang, gang, it's the 22nd of September. You have nine more days to nominate men for the office of elder. So if you haven't done that and you've got some man that you feel like biblically qualifies for that office, I hope you'll uh, take advantage of this. This is your responsibility. Uh, There is no committee in the back room um, putting this together. You're it. You're the nominating committee, and you're the ones that elect the elders that lead us. So this little card you'll need. Now, that said, let's look at words that are inspired, words that are inerrant. We'll start reading at verse 3 and go through verse 11 of um, Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and are not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this, this endures forever. Guys, this is a very famous passage of Scripture. It's not, it's not famous in the sense that 1 Corinthians 13, you know, about love, or Hebrews 11 about faith. It's not in that category. But it's famous because of the subject matter, the, 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 the subject that it's treating. If you're a reader, if you read much uh, Christian literature, 
you're going to find that authors often refer to this text that I just read you. Um, because if there's anything that we know about pain, um, we know that it's painful and we want less of it. And that's what this is about. It's about God's disciplinary action towards his children. Um, If that doesn't ring a bell, let me use some other words. How about loss or trial or struggle or suffering or pain? That's what this is about. And because we can count on life giving giving us as much of that stuff as we can stand, people often turn to this passage. Now, what I want to do with it is I want to give you, I want you to be able to leave here with four great lessons that are found in the text. Um, Actually, that will just skim the surface. There's more than four great lessons in this passage, but we only have time for four. So bear with me as we we look at four great lessons that uh, are derived and come right out of this passage of Scripture. First of all, Guys, um, when it comes to this subject, when it comes to wrestling with the whole nature of, of um, chastening or discipline or pain or suffering, whatever word you like best, you've got to get one thing straight up front. There's one thing that you've got to know. You've got to keep straight as you, um, as you wrestle through your own uh, situations. And here it is. God's people can never be punished in a judicial sense, for their sin. God's people can never be punished, in a judicial sense, for their sin. Chastised? Yes. Disciplined? Yes. Punished? Never. Why? Well, because your sin has already been punished in Christ. Well, now, Dr. Young, that's really nice to hear you say that, but you know, uh, Dr. Young, uh, that's just a distinction without a difference. Punishment, pain, discipline. Well, I beg to differ, ladies and gentlemen, and let me, let me explain myself. Whatever it is that you're suffering, there is nothing punitive in it. God cannot do that because he's already done it. So whatever it is that you're experiencing, it isn't a negative, it's a positive. The reason I I, I would submit to you that this is so important that you get this right is because I can almost guarantee you that that's the first place you're going to go when some kind of pain or suffering strikes. You're going to go to the, oh, God's punishing me um, for my sin, He's avenging all my wrongdoings. <coughs> he's, um, he's out to get me. He's angry at me. You're going to go there because Satan is going to see to it that you go there. Because, because Satan would have you be estranged from your heavenly father and conclude that he is mean. Now, as opposed to that, I want you to hear what this text is all about. Do you know the statement in Proverbs chapter 22? Oh, we use it and we use it. It goes like this. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child and the rod will drive it far from him. Guys, 
Every father in this room, worth his salt, every father that loves his children, they, they see certain behaviors in their own children that gotta go. And so those behaviors must be met with a period of instruction. And if, they're, and if they're not, the child may do something really bad, like play with matches or run out in the traffic or whatever. Gang, whereas we as fathers, and this text mentions that, discipline our children, that's what the heavenly father is up to. That is how God destroys the power of sin in the life of his sons and daughters. Because he has already cleansed us from the guilt of sin because of the work of Christ. Folks, um, if I can, in the midst of my own difficulty, see that God is parenting me and not punishing me, then I'm better able to maintain the intimacy and the sweetness in our relationship with, with my Heavenly Father without souring in the midst of my pain. Folks, the, the principle that you've got to keep in mind in the midst of, if you're a child of God, this is not punishment. This is parenting. This is loving parenting. Now that's great truth number one. Here's great truth number, tr- number two, and it really centers upon verses five and six in the text. You'll notice that in verse 5, we are told that there are two things that we are to avoid. Two things, two errors that we cannot make. They're both mentioned in verse 5. Number one, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Number two, nor be weary when, he's, when you're reproved by him. So those are two, the two of the mistakes that we make in the midst of our own pain and suffering and trial and difficulty. Well, how, whatever you want to say. We... Um, we regard it lightly. How do we do that? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. And we grow weary. How do we do that? I'll tell you that in a minute, too. Um, okay, those are two things we're supposed to not do. Okay, so how do we then regard it lightly? Well, here's one way. We murmur at it. Or we murmur at God. Well, what, what, what have I done? I mean, <laughs> I mean why me? Um, that guy over there, he's a far worse sinner than I am, and he doesn't suffer as much as I do. I, I mean... Um, uh, if there's anything that will cause me to um, doubt his goodness, it's my pain. Um, gang, um, we, in the midst of this struggle, we, we begin to question whether he's good, and we'll admit that maybe he's good generally speaking, and maybe he might be good to others, but he's not good to me. Really. Uh, tell me, would, would you agree that God disciplines us far less frequently than, than we deserve? You know, in that story of Job and his three friends, and the three friends come and they try to help and they don't do, nothing but, they don't do anything but uh, hurt. One of them, Zophar, says to Job this, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You realize that? Let me, let me put it to you this way. I have not gotten a speeding ticket 
since 1987. But do you know how many speeding tickets I deserve? 400,000 maybe? So the next time I get a speeding ticket, no murmuring. Because as Zophar said, don't you understand that his disciplines are far fewer than our sin deserves? Do you get that? Guys, I am grateful that he does not chasten me for every time, every, every one of my sins. But to, um, to question his goodness? Oh, my goodness. The next time I get a speeding ticket, I won't be questioning his goodness. I'll be thanking him for the other 400,000 times that he didn't give me a ticket. Um, here's another way that we regard lightly his disciplines. We, um, in the midst of it, ask, well, how can this be good for me? I mean, really. Uh, success is good, but failure is not. Uh, a growing portfolio, that's good, but a, but a, but a, but a stock downturn, that, that's not good. Health is, um, is God's providence, but sickness is, yeah, you know, that's a waste. A job promotion is good, but a job loss, that ain't good, that's bad. Are you sure about that? Can you not look back through the history of your life and see an event that occurred when you thought it was really bad. And then you look back on it months, maybe years later, and you think, hmm, that was really a good thing. You know, Billy Graham tells this story about um, his wife, Ruth. And before he met Ruth, uh, he fell in love with this other woman and uh, just was all over, you know, um, goo-goo out about her and asked her to marry him. She turned him down. And he was broken hearted, and that was just terrible. And then he meets, he meets Ruth. He looks back and he says, I sure am glad she turned me down. Or I wouldn't have had Ruth. Guys, every one of us, every one of us can look back and see that. You know, guys, I have been in the ministry for 45 years and I love what I do and I love where I get to do it but about year 10 there was a terrible ministerial crisis in my life it wasn't a marital crisis it was a ministerial crisis and it was hard it was really hard and I don't want to ever go through that again but the next 35 years of my ministry were influenced positively by something that took place 35 years ago, which I thought it couldn't get worse. And yet today I look back on it and say, how can that be good for me? Oh my goodness. It's real good for me. One other way that we um, regard lightly his, uh, his discipline is that we waste the pain. Um, we're chastened, but we end up being taught nothing. We lose our health, but then we get it back. 
and we're as proud as we ever were. Guys, can I give you a little advice? Do you know what's going on, at least one of the things that's going on in the midst of your pain? God is putting his finger on some of your sin. What is it? You need to ask that. In, in my life, I can't speak for everybody else. But most often, it's my own high-mindedness and pride that he is not going to let me harm people with. And so he puts his finger on it. Brother and sister, find out. Find out what sin it is that prompted this. Don't waste it. Now, the other thing he says in verse 5 is that not only should we not regard lightly, also don't grow weary. Gang, if there is anything that produces weariness, it is pain. And so we give up. As long as I sense God's smile, man, I'm all in. But let him, let me sense his frown and I'm done. I quit. I'm, I'm finished. I, I've had enough. Gang, from where I stand as a pastor, I watch people drop out. I watch them disappear. There was this period where there was all this religious uh, activity. And then they're gone. Something happens. And they're gone. Tell me, does that tell you anything about yourself? Um, that maybe all of your holy living was designed to twist God's arm so that he would give you the life that you really wanted? You know that Satan said, to God, said that to God about Job. You know that, don't you? You remember at the beginning of the book, Satan comes before God and he says, <laughs> yeah, 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 I, I, I know this Job fellow, but does Job serve you for nothing? <laughs> You, you get the implication of that, don't you? I mean, the only reason that Job is serving you is so that he can get good things from you. Is that, is that your motive? Well, guys, we're going to find out. We're all going to find out. You know how? In your response to your pain. That you not grow weary. That you not throw in the towel that you um, endure. Here's another way that we um, grow weary. We begin to doubt whether we're a Christian. I mean, I have that asked me all the way. I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a child of God, well, then what, what not, why was I dealt this? Guys, did you, did you listen to the text as I read it? Do you know why it's famous? This is why it's famous. Because it says to the readers, listen, what son does God, did he ever have that he didn't chasten? Well, Moses, not Moses. 
Abraham, not Abraham. What about David? David too, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they all were chastened. And the, and the time that you ought to begin to wonder whether you're a believer is when you're not chastened. I didn't make that up. That came right from verse 8. All of this talk about, well, I don't know because, you know, I've got some pain here and, you know, I don't know what I'm... Do you not understand? He says it in verse 6. The Lord's disciplines the one he loves. If you don't have any of that, then you can wonder. But we don't wonder because we're being chastened. Because God chastened. He says, do you remember? Don't, don't forget the, the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Mm, God chastens everybody he loves. Did you know that? Did you forget it? Well, if, if you didn't, then you wouldn't be asking this stupid question about whether I'm a child of God or not. Let me give you one more. That is, ways that we grow weary. Because, guys, in the midst of our suffering, the lust in the midst of it is to understand why. If I could just know why, then I could endure it better. You know, you go back, to the, go back with me in your mind's eye to the, uh, the story on, about Job, and the three friends gather, and they, they want to try to help Job. They don't help Job. They hurt Job. And, but the first speaker is the guy by the name of Eliphaz. And it's in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9 or so. Uh, but Eliphaz says to Job, Job, <laughs> I know why you're suffering. That's easy. I got it. I got it figured out, Job. I know why. And what he says is, although he doesn't use these words, I'm going to use these words, but he doesn't use these. It's, in essence, quid pro quo. You know what that means? Quid pro quo? It's this for that. You're, you're, you're experiencing this because of that. It's simple, Job. You know, you did this. You didn't, you, you didn't, you're not perfect. And therefore, you got this. It's simple. No, it isn't. It never is, ladies and gentlemen. It is never simple. And the reason that it's not simple is because this God is a God whose ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. My brother and sister, listen to me. Um, We can indeed know God truly. But you will never know him comprehensively. Because of the infinite distance between deity and humanity. The creator and the created. There's an infinite distance, ladies and gentlemen. You know, this, I would never do this because, you know, I would never, I'd never be caught dead with a power saw in my hand. But if I ever made a birdhouse, my birdhouse wouldn't understand me either. Because it's a creature and I'm the creator. So you can ask why until you're blue in the face. And you may get an answer. But you may not. And just understand that um, this side of heaven, there's a lot of questions that go unanswered. Now, that's the second glorious truth in this passage. Here's the third one. 
And it really centers around verse 11. Gang, and I'm telling you, this is one of my favorites. I, I would suggest to you that you, 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 you probably ought to memorize this. Verse 11. Can I read it to you again slowly? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But, Later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Gang, I I want you to fix your attention in that verse on the word seems. For the moment, all discipline seems. See that? You know, guys, it seems to me that the earth stands still. But it doesn't. You know, it seems to me that, um, that the sun sets. But that's not true, is it? But that's what it seems to me. Um, but the seeming that I have just described is not the truth. Appearances very often are false. Things are not what they seem. And my feelings are the shallowest part of me while God is doing his work in the deepest part of me. So for me to rely on those is an enormous mistake. Guys, there is so much Seeming that goes on among us, which does nothing but make our situations worse, all brought on by our seeming. We're guilty of unbelief, um, and we, we, we exaggerate the black and minimize the white. We are, we are guilty of superstition and ignorance, a black cat and the number 13, and, and um, a bad omens and a bad seed. And we're so used to ease. We've gotten used to it, and so we get a, a headache, and we think we got a brain tumor. And then Satan gets in there and just doubles it all up, and we turn out a mess. All of that, ladies and gentlemen, falls into the category of seeming. Well, you know, it seems to me, stop right there and go read this text. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But, don't you just love that but? But later, gang, results are not immediate. I plant zinnias every spring and they don't come up by that afternoon. I got to wait on them. Pain only becomes good later. And we're promised that it yields. 
It's another great word in that verse, it yields. The word yields suggests that there's a mastermind behind it all, and there is. My, my worst things often turn into good for me. My losses become gains. My, um, I seem to get healthier after I've been sick, spiritually. Guys, um, we're told in verse 11 that it yields fruit, peaceable fruit. And that's what God is up to. A peaceful fruit. The soul is calmed. The storm is over. And I'm a different person. I'm a person more like the Savior. And I bet you every one of us can look back on incidences in our past and we can see the truth of what's mentioned right here in verse 11. Now I want you to notice one other thing in verse 11. It is a promise made to whom? Not everybody. It is for those who have been trained by it. That word trained is an interesting Greek word. It's the word gymnazo, from which we get our English word gymnasium. The only ones that can claim this are the ones who have been trained by this process. You know, I learned early on in, the, in, in seminary that Romans 8.28 is not for everybody. Romans 8.28, um, for all things work to go, together for good for everybody. It doesn't say that, ladies and gentlemen. It says, for all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. So just like Romans 8, 28 is not for everybody, neither is Hebrews 12, 11. It's for those who are trained by it, who yield to the chastening rod of a loving heavenly father. And for them, though it seems painful now, we fix our attention on the other side of the butt, the later. Now, here's the fourth great truth in the text, and it takes us up to verse 3. Now, gang, I've been telling you this all throughout our study of Hebrews, that the author of Hebrews is trying to give information adequate to encourage his readers to hang on in the midst of their pain persecution by the Romans of the early church. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't quit. Don't regard it lightly. You know, just hang it. And here is his, the cherry on the top of his argument. He says, as his final appeal to them, consider him. In the midst of your trial, Consider him. He says one thing about him. He says, you didn't shed any blood, did you? But consider him. He did. Guys, if we are united to Christ, we are united to a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He is called a suffering servant. And not only that, 
in chapter 5, verse 8 of this very book, it says that Jesus learned through suffering. Well, heaven, for heaven's sakes, if Jesus learned through suffering, what about us? Why do bad things happen to good people? This book doesn't answer that question. But what it does do instead is that it offers you a perfect person and it tells you, consider him. It offers you a perfect person and says to you that even though you live a life of utter perfection, you are not exempt from pain. So consider him. You know, guys, there's a song that we sing around here, a hymn. It was written by Horatio G. Spafford. You know, it is well with our soul. And that was written after he lost children in an ocean liner accident in the Atlantic. But he wrote his song, his hymn, as a hymn of praise to God. A God who had also lost a child. And God lost his on purpose. Not an accident. He did it on purpose. So in the midst of ours, my brother and sister in Christ, consider him let me say this before I close if you were here this morning and you are not a Christian I'm glad you're here but I think you would agree with me you suffer too for every Christian that gets cancer a non-Christian gets cancer and I ask ask you my non-Christian friend where do you get comfort where do you go for comfort I understand your gaiety. I can understand while in times of gaiety, everything is good. But what do you do when your husband walks out? What, what do you do when, you, when you've lost your health? I hope this is not insensitive to say. But I marvel that there are not more suicides. Because what comfort do you have? My friend, if you're a non-Christian, there is going to be a later, and it will be dreadful. The only way to prepare for later is to come to Christ now. So, to my non-Christian friend, consider him, the one who in our eyes is altogether lovely.
Our Father, I do pray that you will um, show your people the, the, the genius and the logic behind this text so that we can do better at representing you in the midst of um, those periods where we hurt. Might these truths help us cope better? But Lord, for the, um, for the non-Christians that you have brought into this room this morning, and we're so glad you have, would you cause them to see that their, their future is so untenable and that they are, they are gambling with eternity? Would you show them the great beauty of Christ and him crucified? Might they leave with a certain sense of unrest until they have come to the place where they put their faith in Christ and find rest in him. Do that, Father, for the glory of Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen.